Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational organization, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. Latin America is currently experiencing its worst ever refugee crisis. Figures are tough to come by, but most estimates are that several thousands of Venezuelans are fleeing the country every single day. And in recent weeks, the pace and scale of this refugee crisis has sharply increased, and there is no end in sight. My guest today, André Serbin-Pont, explains why Venezuelans are leaving their country in such profound numbers. He is the research director of the regional think tank CRIES, and recently undertook a study of the Venezuelan refugee crisis with the Stanley Foundation. And I'll post a link to that study on globaldispatchespodcast.com. As André explains, most of these refugees are fleeing to Colombia and Brazil, and those countries are having a difficult time handling the influx. Still, many are fleeing elsewhere, including to nearby Caribbean islands, which have virtually no capacity to handle a sharp increase in population. The bottom line is that this is becoming a very intense regional crisis, and it is accelerating. Uh, we kick off this conversation by discussing what distinguishes this phase of the refugee crisis from a previous period of massive out-migration from Venezuela in the early 2000s, after Hugo Chavez came to power. And that first phase lasted until about 2014, when Nicolas Maduro became president. We then discuss the causes of this out-migration and its broader regional and global implications. This is a great episode. I love shining a spotlight on these issues that don't get the kind of press they deserve. And this is certainly one of them. This is the worst refugee crisis in the Western Hemisphere in in years and decades. And it's worth spending 20 minutes learning about what caused it, who is fleeing, and why we need to care about this. Uh, as always, you can reach me via globaldispatchespodcast.com using the contact button. I love hearing from you. Big thank you to all of you premium subscribers. Uh, I'm glad to keep posting those premium episodes, including my most recent one uh, about the race for the executive director of the International Organization for Migration. Uh, it's sort of heating up and there are some intricacies and ins and outs and some big implications over the fact that the American candidate has uh, said some disparaging things about Muslims and that uh, is threatening his candidacy. So become a premium subscriber to access that episode and other bonuses as well. And you can do so via the Global Dispatches podcast homepage. All right. Now, here is my conversation with Andre Serbin-Pont, research director of the CRIES think tank. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. 
Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. You know, starting 2001, especially after the 2002 crisis in PDVSA, the attempted coup, and so on, we start seeing an increase in the number of Venezuelans that are leaving the country. Now, during this first wave, um, what we notice as a trend is that most, most of these are wealthy families or upper middle class families that, you know, have greater access uh, to savings, to possibilities of uh, accessing the job markets in other countries. They have college degrees, graduate studies degrees, and so on. Uh, many of them have business abroad or had the possibility to continue their economic activity from abroad or in other countries. Mm -hmm. Therefore, the profile of this this first wave is one of mostly skilled professionals that are leaving the country and that they're leaving in uh, very comfortable or adequate economic conditions that allow them to easily reintegrate uh, into the countries to which they are migrating. And they're mostly going to like Miami, right? Well, yes, there was a lot to United States, there was a lot to Spain uh, and other European countries. We have to take into consideration that a lot of Venezuelans uh, have access to European community passports, specifically to Spain and Italy. So a lot of them took that opportunity in, in order to be able to legally migrate into another country uh, using that possibility to access uh, European nationalities. And also, yes, to United States, a great part of them were going to Miami. Um, and then uh, we, when we see the second wave of migration is that we start to notice that shift in, in, in the countries that they're going to. And, and so, so that was uh, basically my, that we're in that, that second wave right now, presumably. And, and how and when did that wave evolve and, and shift? And I should say, I don't like using like, like water metaphors when referring to refugees. So I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to stop doing that. It's like, it's something that bothers me because these are human beings, not pieces of water. Yes. And I agree with that too. Um, let's call it faces maybe. And, faces, and it simplifies. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so, so we can, we can use that term, but, um, the, I would say that the limit between the two uh, faces in migration are probably the 2014 protests in Venezuela. Um, that's a moment in which uh, Maduro is already consolidated in power after the election previous to that. Um, and a lot of Venezuelans are very distrustful of the situation, of the capabilities of the new government. And new government, meaning just Maduro himself, you know, a lot of Venezuelans did not have the trust in Maduro that that maybe they had with Chavez before. Um, And we start seeing the first indicators of uh, economic uh, deterioration, the poverty index going up. The protests in 2014, 2014 are very violent and the reaction on behalf of government is very violent. And there's widespread repression, there's political prisoners. Um, there's all these elements that start adding up to what was already a, a very difficult situation in Venezuela. Uh, and that's what starts pushing a greater portion of the population out of Venezuela. And to a large degree, still a lot of these people that were leaving the country in 2014 were people that had the means to, in order to be able to travel to another country, that had the possibilities to um, 
to access the job markets in other countries. They had, they still, you know, they were professionals. Um, so there's, there's kind of like a, a middle point between these two phases, right? Mm-hmm. And in 2014, maybe the first thing that we noticed is, is a change in motivation. It's not just the economic migration. But there's other there's incidents of the political situation in the country. Like there's people are fleeing violence and, and persecution, as opposed to just tr- exactly. Yeah. And like are, exactly, are claiming exactly. uh, starting to claim asylum. Exactly, and as that second wave uh, becomes, when the second phase starts becoming bigger and stronger, is that we start noticing that um, other socioeconomic sectors also start trying to leave the country. And in many cases, these are people uh, from, at first from lower middle class or, uh, and then more marginalized uh, sectors in Venezuelan society, uh, people with a lot less resources, some of them only with a high school degree. Um, and, and the conditions that they are leaving the country in are a lot more complicated. So they're not getting on an airplane and going to Miami, or they're not getting on an airplane and going to Spain, but they might be going somewhere closer where they can afford the air ticket to. So maybe they go to Panama, or maybe they cross through land to Colombia, or they go also through the Brazilian border and get to Boavista and then try to travel to Sao Paulo, Rio de Janeiro, and then from there to Argentina or to Chile. And, and that's when we start seeing this shift in the type of migration. So people that do not have the same level of resources in order to migrate and, or leave the country and be able to go through the process of settling down in the country uh, that maybe don't have the same skills that allow them to better insert themselves into the job market. And as this situation grows, then we start seeing an even further deterioration in the sense that they're not sure to what country they're going to. They're just trying to get out of Venezuela because the situation is getting a lot worse. And then the motivation is not just the political motivation then. So, so at this point, do we have a sense of how many Venezuelans have fled the estimates are very hard to make for a few reasons. And depending on the source, we're talking around two to four million Venezuelans. To that, we have to add also many Colombians that had double nationalities or were Colombians residing in Venezuela. And we have no figures on that whatsoever. Even the Colombian government is unaware of how many Colombians have actually moved back into Colombia, right? Uh, what we do know is that at, at, at its peak, the Colombian population in Venezuela was around 5 million. And the expectations are that probably somewhere between a million or 2 million of those Colombians in Venezuela have already gone back to Colombia. And, and to sort of complicate um, the story a little bit, many of these Colombians in Venezuela uh, themselves had fled conflict in, in Colombia. Well, and that's one of the key issues when we're looking at the refugee crisis as in the context of Venezuela, that the main recipient of refugees right now is Colombia, which is a country that has usually created refugees and, and had people flow out of its own borders. And now it's in a situation that it's completely unknown to them, which is the fact that they're receiving refugees. And this has been very complicated for the Colombian to deal, to figure out how to cope with a situation like this, because 
it has always been the other way around. So I, I want to actually uh, ask you a little bit more along those lines about how Colombia is is coping with the situation, because I know that's a big focus of your report. But but I, I do want to ask you about this 12% of the population figure, which is included in the report, which is, I think, a rough, rough estimate of the number of Venezuelans displaced. Is that about right, do you think? Yes, I think that's a pretty adequate, uh, uh, accurate number. And it also uh, helps, first of all, illustrate the magnitude of the crisis. But it's also a very important figure to keep in mind uh, when and if at some moment there is a political transition in Venezuela, the fact that a large portion of its population, specifically professionals, as well as uh, younger economically active generations are going to be outside of the country. And for any future government in Venezuela, if there's no specific policy in order to try and bring these people back into the country, um, it's going to have a very deep economic impact on possibilities of, of Venezuela trying to get back on its track. So, so this issues has has been on my radar for a while but you know i I mostly kind of cover the united nations and uh you know i'm not used to seeing the u.n refugee agency issue alerts for things that are happening in um in in latin america frankly you know we think about refugee crises we tend to think about you know the middle east or or parts of africa but not latin america and and the numbers here are just like startling particularly in in recent weeks it seems that the situation is accelerating you're having like thousands and thousands of people per day are leaving the country well and the the there's numerous organizations inside Venezuela right now that they're doing uh, research on the ground to see how many Venezuelans are expecting, are trying to get out of the country or are considering that possibility. And one of the latest figures that I saw uh, was that around 57% of the population said that if they had the means to leave the country, they would, mm-hmm. which is a growth from last year when it was around 34%. Uh, so it's not only that a lot of people are leaving, but every day more and more people are willing and wanting to leave, but they might not have the means to get out of the country. And it's, and it's frankly just a consequence of the fact that the situation in Venezuela itself continues to deteriorate. Um, there's a stat in, in, in your report which said something like the maternal mortality rates like surge 65% in just like a year. Like things are getting worse quickly. Well, right now, nine out of 10 Venezuelans are having trouble in getting two meals a day. So the situation in Venezuela, and maybe we, I mentioned a few points on this because it's critical to understand the situation. There's no medical supplies. People are getting their medical supplies through the black market, or they're crossing over to the Colombian border in order to be able to buy it there and bring it back. So for example, something very common on the Colombian border is that Women who are pregnant, they cross over, they buy a maternity kit, which is all the things they need so they can have their babies in the hospital. They, w- they bring it back, and then they go to the hospital and have their babies in Venezuela. Hmm. Because even the most basic medical supplies are not available. Um, food, Venezuela imports around 80% of its food with a collapse in oil prices uh, and with a very 
bad mismanagement of Venezuela's oil company, uh, the government is having trouble accessing the dollars it needs in order to purchase food abroad. So a lot of people are on one, maybe two meals a day. There's a statistic that indicates that the average Venezuela has lost over eight kilos in weight uh, over the last two years. Um, and that's an average over uh, in the entire country. Um, then there's something that hasn't been mentioned as much lately, um, but is very important and very present in the mentality of Venezuelans is that the country has become very violent. So last year we had approximately 27,000 homicides, which puts us uh, in the race of homicides to every 100,000 people right under the city of El Salvador making it the second most uh, dangerous country in the world. And actually, if you take the top 10 city, top 10 most dangerous city in the world, four of them you'll find are Venezuelan. So people are in a situation in which they can't access food. They can't access uh, medical supplies or medical attention. They are being killed on the streets many times for even food or any basic uh, object that might be of any value. And when they do protest, they find themselves uh, uh, dealing with a National Guard and a National Police that is very violent in its actions. And on top of that, a large part of the political leadership is being imprisoned. Uh, human rights defenders are being persecuted. So there's a lot of elements that are going into the decision of these Venezuelans yeah. saying, I have to leave because it's the only way I can... I can either stay alive or actually provide any future for myself or my family. I think it was Moises Naim, who, who I had on, on the podcast, who, who said that the kind of changes in, in uh, the human condition that you're seeing in Venezuela, um, where you're having a country go from like a middle-income country to a low-income country, that doesn't happen uh, absent of war. And that's what makes it so unique that Venezuela is undergoing this collapse, but there's no like war. Uh, you know, these these kinds of dramatic shifts you're seeing uh are happening just you know in in kind of slow motion like this or not that slow motion uh in 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 any case i wanted to ask you about how colombia is handling this migration you know at least superficially it seems that uh president uh, santos is is saying the right things uh is the government of colombia doing the right things to try to help and, and absorb these uh refugees and migrants well from what we can see, the, the Colombian government is quite concerned with the situation. It has done some things like uh, providing uh, documentation to some of the Venezuelans that are crossing over the border, which allows these Venezuelans to, because they understand also that a large part of that population is actually uh, pendular immigrants. So they're going back and forth. They're pendular immigrants. I, I, I like that. I like that term, pendular immigrants. Yeah, <laughs> that's illustrative. Yeah. So they're going back and forth. Uh, and they're getting supplies and they sell things in Colombia and they buy some others and then they go back. So for, for that population, they, they've been granting um, this migratory decision that allows these Venezuelans to move through the border and so on. A lot of the Venezuelans also are using that documentation in order to go deeper into the country and access cities like Bogota, for example. Uh, but when it comes to specifically understanding it as a refugee crisis, one of the main reactions that the government has shown is, okay, we need to set up tents on the border and stockpile water and food, and it's kind of treating it like if it was a natural disaster that is about to happen. 
And while that might be valuable in the immediate term, in order to cope with a very complicated humanitarian situation on the border, it's not an adequate solution for all these people that are actually just migrating and trying to leave the country and are not willing to go back to Venezuela. Um, and, and this has led to a lot of Venezuelans being forced into uh, informal labor, labor into um, sex trafficking. Uh, there's uh, a lot of uh, reports on Venezuelans being um, recruited by armed groups, paramilitary groups, guerrilla groups, drug trafficking groups, and so on. Uh, so as long as the situation in which Venezuelans that are arriving into Colombia don't have a way to, to obtain a regular migratory situation and be able to access jobs and education and health, uh, then we're going to continue to see the problem escalate because all of the forecasts right now indicate that Venezuelans are likely to continue uh, leaving the country at even higher rates and even more so in the context of an election that is seen as fraudulent and in which Maduro uh, maintains power. Is, is there any concern in Colombia that the influx of a population as rapidly as, as people are fleeing Venezuela to Colombia may undermine Colombia's hard-won peace with the FARC? I think that the element that is contributing contributing to this instability to the peace process in Colombia is actually the overall instability in Venezuela. So it's not just the fact that a large portion of the population of Venezuelan population is going to Colombia in very complicated situation conditions, but also the fact that a lot of the guerrilla groups that uh, signed peace agreements or that are about to sign peace agreements, they're moving their operations to the Venezuelan side because they know they're immune there. So they operate from Venezuela and then go back into Colombia. Uh, there's the fact that the Colombian government perceives the Venezuelan government as an ally to a lot of the drug trafficking groups, whether or not they are linked to guerrillas, but mm. uh, they see them as, as an ally. So all these elements, they start to come into play. And right now, the peace process in Colombia even though the deals were signed right now, um, it, it was very interesting because while we were at Columbia, in Colombia during, during uh, the workshop in which we made this policy memo, something that kept on coming up and, and just translating. Before, we used to talk about the, post, um, the post-peace uh, uh, phase, right? Uh, and now we're talking about the post-agreement phase, right? Mm-hmm. So... Uh, Colombians right now, they're in a situation in which they're, they're not sure if the piece that they signed is actually going to make it through. And, and, and this just adds, it, and, and it, like the, the refugee crisis just adds like another sort of variable. Exactly. It adds another variable and also plays into a very complicated election that's coming up in which refugees are becoming part of the rhetoric from different, part, uh, different mm. candidates. So uh, Brazil, I take it, is a less popular destination, principally for the language barrier? Yes. And also there's geographical barriers, too. Um, Brazil is very isolated, the area in which Venezuelans are migrating to or crossing over to, right? So 
the, the state of Roraima is very isolated from the rest of Brazil. And also, the socioeconomic conditions there are very poor. What is very important to highlight is that while nominally refugees going to Colombia are a lot larger in numbers, uh, in proportion to the local population, in Brazil, it's an enormous issue um, because the population of Roraima is very small. In, the, in Boa Vista, where most of the Venezuelan refugees are arriving, it's a small population and the Venezuelans are arriving in thousands a week. Uh, so the impact on the health infrastructure and the education infrastructure is very high. Uh, and also the populations that are arriving to uh, Brazil, they don't have the profile of the first phase of immigrants that we talked about before. Mm -hmm. Most of these people are, well, first of all, there's a large part of indigenous populations that are being displaced already internally inside Venezuela mm. and now are crossing over to, to Colombia. There's a lot of families of minors or, or low-income families that are moving into Brazil too. Um, so they're arriving in very vulnerable uh, conditions. The advantage that they have when it comes to Brazil is, first of all, Brazil waived um, the, um, the, the cost of uh, getting a legal residence in Brazil. So there's no uh, monetary cost to being able to obtain the residence once they get to Brazil, uh, as long as they have all the required documentation, which is relatively easy. There's an agreement in the context of Mercosur that makes it a lot easier for Venezuelans to access so, so they could be like they residence. could be legally temporary residents that probably presumably opens them up to some social services, but also allows them probably the right to work in in a way which is always a barrier that that refugees face. But but basically, exactly. you're saying that in this yeah, and in, 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 this is just like such a remote part of Brazil, um, and the part of Venezuela from which these people are are, are fleeing is also remote and poor that. They, exactly. they, 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 they're just like in a much more vulnerable uh, socioeconomic position. Yeah. And one thing I would add regarding the migratory status of Venezuelans arriving in Brazil is that even if they don't apply for the temporary Mercosur residence, which is what a lot of them are doing, in Brazil, when you apply for political asylum, automatically you have the right to the Carteira de Trabalho, which is a document uh, made by Brazil mm -hmm. that is the one that you need in order to access uh, formal work. So that's a big benefit that they don't have in other countries. They know that whether they go through the residence process or the asylum process, they'll get a cartera de trabalho, which is going to allow them to legally work. Hmm. What about Guyana? Are, are there any uh, migrants going to Guyana? Not that many. Uh, what Guyana has been seeing is uh, a lot of military personnel, Venezuelan military personnel, defecting. And in some cases, even selling their guns in order to buy food on, uh. in Guyana. This has been a huge issue, uh, mostly because Guyana has a very uh, low capability to monitor its own borders and yeah. a very complex security situation. What we are seeing is a lot of Venezuelans going to Trinidad and Tobago, for example. And also uh, a lot of the Dutch Antilles in the Caribbean. Hmm. And these cases are particularly complex because while we can say that in Colombia and in Brazil, the um, ju ju uh, judicial framework for receiving um, immigrants or refugees is, you know, not the best. 
in the case of, of these Caribbean countries, it's even uh, less adequate, right? So and right now we have a situation, for example, in Trinidad, with 100 Venezuelans that have been detained and are in prison uh, for illegally migrating into the country. Um, and these countries right now, they're, they're really uh, not in capacity to deal with this growing crisis of, uh, of immigrants. To some of the Dutch Antilles, uh, we're seeing the first cases of balseros. Historically, we were used to balseros. You know, the Cubans. I don't know what that is. And balseros are, are the, the term that uh, refers to the, the Cubans that would improvise rafts or boats and cross over to get to Miami. Ah. Well, we're seeing the first cases of Venezuelan balseros. Just trying to get on any type of ship or improvised ship and, and, and sail into a Caribbean nation in order to, to seek asylum, to work there illegally, uh, to apply, for, just trying to get out of the country. And they're doing it by sea, too. So it's not only just us going over the border with Colombia and the border uh, with Brazil. They're also just trying to reach any of the Caribbean nations. Uh, well, Andre, we're, we're just about out of time. But is there anything else? we missed or, or anything else you think ought to be emphasized? You know, again, this is not an issue that's like regularly covered by the mainstream media. So I'd like to sort of shine a spotlight on it. Um, but, but you're the expert. It, is there anything part of this aspect of this conversation that uh, is worth emphasizing or that I, I missed in asking you? Well, what I would say is that on one hand, uh, this situation is spreading to a lot of the other countries in the region. Right now, the third recipient of Venezuelan immigrants, is, uh, immigrants and refugees is Chile. Argentina has all, is also receiving many. So is Peru. And what we're seeing is that for the moment, the countries are taking different types of measures in order to facilitate or restrict the access of Venezuelans entering their country and the possibility for them to legally reside there. Um, but we're still lacking a joint position or coordinated position on the issue of Venezuelan refugees. So in the case of Grupo Lima, which uh, a lot of the countries in the region are part of, and they're trying to, to at least coordinate policies on how to deal with Venezuela overall, especially its government, we're still not seeing coordinated actions regarding the refugee situation. And as the situation grows, that's going to become even more important, not only because we can't expect Colombia to deal with the whole situation on its own, but because it's clear that this is going to have a regional impact. And we're talking about the hundreds of thousands of Venezuelans that are going all the way to Argentina, to Chile, to Peru, to Uruguay, to Brazil. They're going to Caribbean states. They're going to Panama. So there needs to be at some moment some higher level of coordination between these countries uh, in order to make sure that on one hand, um, we're safeguarding the, the rights uh, of, of these refugees, uh, but also that we're understanding that this is something that's going to impact the whole region in general and that we can't just say, okay, we try and close the barrier and that they stay in Colombia or somewhere. No, this is going to continue spreading. And, and it has to do also with the fact that unless there's coordinated actions in Venezuela and the situation inside Venezuela, the humanitarian crisis in Venezuela is not dealt with, the outflow of refugees is going to continue to grow. So it's, it, it, there's both sides to it. There's the regional aspect to it, but also um, understanding that even with or, no, with or without transition in Venezuela, if there's not any um, adequate solutions to the internal crisis, 
then this is going to continue growing. Uh, well, Andre, thank you so much for your time. This was very helpful. No, thank you for the invitation. It was great. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Andre. That was very helpful. And yeah, as I mentioned at the outset, uh, I do like shining a spotlight on these undercovered global stories. And it's kind of bizarre to me how little I've been seeing uh, about this refugee crisis. I I mean, I see it because I'm on, you know, uh, like email blasts from like the UN Refugee Agency, but it's not something I'm seeing frequently covered in kind of like the regular sources, uh, even though it is the largest refugee crisis in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, once again, big thank you to everyone out there who is sharing the podcast. This is how the podcast grows. You telling your friends, you posting about it, tweeting about it on social media, etc. Um, you know, this is... I hope to make this a sustainable enterprise and the way it becomes a sustainable enterprise is by you uh, sharing the podcast and by growing the audience and thank you for, for all you're doing to that end. All right. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye. Oh, wait, uh, I have like 10 more stickers. If you want to get one, leave a review uh, of the podcast on iTunes and I will uh, mail you one. Just send me an email after you've left the review. All right. Thanks. Bye. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of Humanity in Action.